Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be a beat writer for the Chicago Cubs when they win the World Series for the first time in 108 years? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 46 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show at any time, 24-7, at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured on the next installment of The Bridge. Some apologies are in order for leaving you all hanging last week. I'm sure you were all as distraught as I was and had similar feelings to mine of... And... And also... Since next week is Thanksgiving, the bridge will be on holiday, so spend your Wednesday night enjoying one of the biggest drinking nights of the year, and if you really miss me that much, you can find the show on iTunes or LondonBridge.com and catch up with the show. The bridge will be back after the holiday on November 30th. That's Wednesday, November 30th, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on SportsRadioAmerica.com. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. As Charles Barkley said in Space Jam, it wasn't a dream, it really happened. That's right, for the first time in 108 years, the Chicago Cubs can call themselves World Series Champions. To celebrate their accomplishment, I thought I'd retell and update the story of the curses that the Cubs had to break in order to win the Fall Classic and the positive significance that the number 108 ended up having for the team after breaking the 108-year-old curse. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. 
And of course, we have the cursed Chicago Cubs, who have not won the World Series since 1908 and have not appeared in a World Series since 1945. As legend has it, 1945 is the start of the hex, deemed the curse of the Billy Goat. During the 1945 World Series with the Cubs facing the Detroit Tigers, ironically, the same team they had once defeated to win the 1908 World Series, longtime Cubs fan Billy Cianis, the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern, came to game four of the series with his pet goat Murphy, like he had done all season long. However, this time, those around him complained about the smell of the goat, and he would be asked to leave. He would, but was outraged, and allegedly sent a telegram to team owner Philip K. Wrigley, declaring that the Cubs would never win a World Series again. Indeed, the Cubs entered Game 4 of that World Series up two games to one, but would lose that game and then the series in seven games. Another curse, at least for one season, came to the Cubs in 1968, when a black cat walked past Ron Santo while he stood in the on-deck circle, playing against the New York Mets at Shea Stadium on September 9th. At the time, the Cubs held a game-and-a-half lead in the division, but that was fading quickly, and after the incident there was no hope. That loss was part of an eight-game losing streak that contributed to the Miracle Mets making up its 17-and-a-half game deficit to the Cubs in the last quarter of the season before going on to win the World Series. The last big curse, at least again for one season, or specifically one game, came in 2003, which... Humorously enough, was the Chinese Zodiac's Year of the Goat. On October 14th, in the eighth inning of Game 6 of the National League Championship Series, the Cubs had a 3-0 lead over the Florida Marlins and were five outs away from moving on to the World Series since they held a 3-2 game series lead. With one out, several fans attempted to catch a fall ball off the bat of Marlins second baseman Luis Castillo. One of those fans, a Mr. Steve Bartman, reached out for the ball as it came toward his seat. Left fielder Moises Alou was camped at the wall and jumped up, also reaching out, to catch the baseball. Though it appeared the ball was out of reach, and any fan interference was not the reason the out was made, Alou threw a temper tantrum, throwing his glove to the ground and gesturing that the fans had prevented him from catching it. Of course, the television broadcast relished in the misfortune of Moises Alou and quickly began replaying the sequence of events and analyzing which fan had prevented the catch. The culprit was a man wearing a green turtleneck, a Cubs hat, a pair of glasses, and headphones. Casillo would then walk on the next pitch, and the Marlins went on to rally for eight runs in the inning to win the game 8-3. Bartman remained seated as Fox repeatedly broadcast live shots of him between multiple replays of the fall ball. 
They then continued to show him while the Marlins poured it on against the poor, poor Cubs. Though no replay boards were at Wrigley Field, family and friends of those in left field began informing them of what was on TV, and news quickly spread that Bartman was the culprit. He eventually needed to be escorted from the stadium while debris rained upon him and basically has been in hiding since. Those fans sure do love their Cubs. But if you're into sports coincidences or destinies, consider the number 108, the number of years it's been since the Cubs last won the World Series. For starters, it takes a total of 108 outs to win the World Series. 27 outs, 4 games. At Wrigley Field, the distance from home plate to the left field and right field foul poles is 108 meters. A Major League Baseball also has 108 stitches for its seams. A.G. Spaulding was the Cubs' first manager in 1876 and also the owner of Spaulding Sporting Goods Company, which makes their baseballs with 108 stitches. In the movies Back to the Future Part 2 and Taking Care of Business, the Cubs are the featured team that win the World Series in those films. The length and minutes of those movies is 108. Recently, when Javier Baez hit the decisive home run in the NLDS that helped the Cubs advance past the San Francisco Giants, it was on opposing pitcher Johnny Cueto's 108th pitch. Cubs starting pitcher Kyle Hendricks, the winning pitcher in the game that clinched the pennant, was born on December 7th 1989. If you add the digits of his birth date, 12789, you'll get 108. And lastly, the atomic weight of the coveted World Series trophy is, you guessed it, 108. And if you still don't believe in sports curses or superstitions, Theo Epstein, the GM who also helped the Boston Red Sox and their 86-year-old drought, was at a benefit in January before the season. Tickets were being pulled with youngsters receiving prizes if they also had the same ticket. Theo reached in for his ticket, pulled it out, and couldn't help but laugh. The number on the ticket read 1908. Theo made sure the curses that have plagued the Cubs were ended once and for all just days after Chicago won the World Series and millions of people lined the streets for the parade. Theo and some members of his executive team sat in an empty left field stands of Wrigley Field, licked their lips, and had a special treat for dinner. The delicacy, you ask? A roasted nine-and-a-half-pound goat. Though Murphy the goat is long gone, the symbolism was not lost, and I'm sure it tasted much better than a black cat or Steve Bartman would. I'm John Lund, for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to keep the lights on. 
When we come back, we'll discuss what life was like the last time the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians were crowned World Series champions. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Can we all just pause for a second here? I never thought I would ever say these next string of words. Within an eight-day period, the Chicago Cubs were crowned World Series champions, and Donald J. Trump was elected the President of the United States. It's just going to take a little while for those two statements to sink in. This year, both in sports and in the real world, has been absolutely bananas. But since this is a sports show, let's just deal with the first part of that crazy, crazy string of words. It's time for the drawbridge, where we draw conclusions for what's happened in the sports world. Lower the bridge. The Chicago Cubs are World Series champions, breaking a 108-year-old curse and winning their first World Series since 1908. The team they beat, the Cleveland Indians, were hopeful to break their own curse, having not won a World Series since 1948. The world is certainly a different time now, though there's still many that can remember what it was like to live that long ago. For this edition of The Drawbridge, let's wind back the clocks to what life was like the last time Cleveland and Chicago last celebrated a World Series championship, starting all the way back in 1948. But first, let's get a brief intro from one of the correspondents for The Bridge. Gene! Thank you, John. The year was 1948. I was a young lad, with dreams, and aspirations. The Cleveland Indians played the Boston Braves in the 1948 World Series. It was the first fall classic televised on a national network. Cleveland spoiled a chance for the only All-Boston World Series by winning a one-game playoff against the Boston Red Sox for the American League pennant. The Hall of Fame pitcher, Bob Feller, failed to win either of his two starts. The Indians won the series in six games to capture their second championship and their first since 1920. Larry Doby, along with teammate Satchel Paige, became the first African-American players to win the World Series, a year after the integration of baseball. The Cleveland Indians haven't won the World Series since. Both teams would meet again in the 1995 World Series with the Braves now in Atlanta. As you know, advantage, Braves. Back to you, John. Thank you, Gene. 
Around the world of sports, in 1948, the Philadelphia Eagles won the National Football League Championship, the Baltimore Bullets were the champions in the NBA, and the Toronto Maple Leafs hoisted the Stanley Cup. Michigan was the champion in college football, and Kentucky was the best team in college basketball. NASCAR also held its first race for modified stock cars at Daytona Beach. If you attended the 1948 World Series, you could get some pretty great seats for about eight bucks. The medium price in Cleveland for game seven of this year's World Series, just to get in would run you about $1,700. Back in 1948, the average cost of a new house was $7,700. The average wages per year, $2,950. The cost of a gallon of gas was 16 cents. The average cost of a new car was $1,250, or what you would have paid to get into this year's World Series. A loaf of bread was 14 cents. A pound of hamburger meat was 45. Science and Mechanics magazine was popular, and that ran you about 20 cents. A movie ticket was 60 cents, and the Oscar winner for Best Film in 1948 went to Hamlet. The President of the United States was Harry S. Truman, who defeated Thomas Dewey that year, and was also later named Times Magazine Man of the Year. The first Polaroid camera went on sale at the Boston Jordan Marsh Department Store for $89.75. Porsche was founded, Velcro was invented, the transistor radio was invented, the game of Scrabble was invented. One million households owned televisions, only after about 5,000 homes had owned them just three years earlier. The most popular Christmas gift for your children was a slinky. Ozzy Osbourne, Steven Tyler, Olivia Newton-John, Samuel L. Jackson, James Taylor, and Alice Cooper were born in 1948. What a time to be alive. On to 1908. Let's go to another correspondent for the bridge. Walter? Thank you, John. The year was 1908. I was a young lad, with dreams, and aspirations. The Chicago Cubs played the Detroit Tigers, in what was a rematch of the 1907 Fall Classic. In the first ever rematch of the young event, the Cubs won in five games for their second consecutive World Series title. This was also the most poorly attended World Series in history, with the final game at Bennett Park in Detroit, drawing a record low of 6,210 fans. The Cubs would win the National League pennant six more times in the next two decades, but a potential dynasty never happened. I can die happy, 
having lived long enough to have seen them win again. Back to you, John. Thank you, Walter. Around the world of sports, in 1908, the Akron Indians won the Ohio Independent Championship and the College Football National Champions were Quakers. Yeah. If you were going to the World Series in 1908, you'd need about a dollar and a quarter to make your way in if you wanted to go to Wrigley Field and catch Game 5 of this year's World Series. You'd also need more than $1,000 just to stand in the stadium. In 1908, the average life expectancy was 47 years. Only 14% of the homes had bathtubs, and only 8% of homes had telephones. Henry Ford's Ford Motor Company introduced the Ford Model T, costing $850. There were only 8,000 cars and only about 144 miles of paved roads, and the maximum speed limit in most cities on those roads was 10 miles per hour. The average wage in 1908 was 22 cents per hour. The average worker made between $200 and $400 per year. 90% of all doctors had no collegiate education. Sugar cost 4 cents a pound. Eggs were 14 cents a dozen. Coffee was 15 cents a pound. Canada passed a law that prohibited poor people from entering into their country for any reason. Canada may pass a different law for people entering their country in 2016, but that's for another day. The five leading causes of death were pneumonia and influenza, tuberculosis, diarrhea, heart disease, and stroke. The American flag had 45 stars. The population of Las Vegas, Nevada was just 30. Crossword puzzles, canned beer, and iced tea hadn't been invented yet. Two out of every 10 adults couldn't read or write. Only 6% of them had graduated from high school, and even fewer still had graduated from 8th grade. Marijuana, heroin, and morphine were all available over-the-counter at the local corner drugstores. There were about 230 reported murders in the entire United States in 1908. The first ever ball drop happened in Times Square. Though the tallest building was not New York, it was still the Eiffel Tower in France. When Theodore Roosevelt decided not to run for a third term, William Howard Taft defeated William Jennings Bryan and became the President of the United States in 1908. The most popular Christmas gift for your whippersnapper children? Trains, crayons, a teddy bear, no one's really sure what was exciting in 1908. Jimmy Stewart, Betty Davis, Lyndon B. Johnson, Mel Blanc, Milton Berle, and Ian Fleming were born in 1908. What a time to be alive. Let's take a quick break to keep the lights on. When we come back, we'll talk to a Chicago Cubs beat writer about Game 7 of the World Series, and we'll talk to our fictitious producer about his time rooting for the 100-loss Chicago Cubs. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. 
As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to The Bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you just might be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into the show. Let's take the easy and corny route this week. Since next week is Thanksgiving, you tell me what you're most thankful for. Yeah. On to this week's guest. We had the pleasure of talking with Gordon Wittenmeyer. He is the Chicago Cubs beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he's been doing that since 2007. He's also covered the Anaheim Angels and the Minnesota Twins before that, and has worked at the Seattle Times, the Sun-Sentinel, and the Chicago Sun-Times, as I mentioned, in 2007. So the man's been around the game of baseball for a long time, covering it as a beat writer, getting in the dugout, getting in the clubhouse, getting completely engulfed in whatever team and beat he happens to be on. He's been through the ringer a little bit, of course, as a Chicago Cubs beat writer, having to cover the team during their rebuilding period in the late 2000s when no one really knew how the team would fare. Fortunately, things have worked out pretty fantastically for the Chicago Cubs, and I'm sure he was quite excited, as was all of Chicago, for what that team was able to do. Unfortunately, our interview was cut short a bit. He was actually on his way to cover the GM meetings in Scottsdale, Arizona before our interview. Many people may think once the season ends, so does the workload for beat writers, but it is a very tasking job, and any time he was able to give us was much appreciated. We'll talk about some of the intricacies of Game 7 and get some of his thoughts on what happened in that clinching game for the Chicago Cubs. After we are done talking with Gordon, we will switch gears and talk to the fictitious producer of The Bridge, Eddie Ocasio, who joined the show to discuss his time in Chicago. He did some teaching down there for a year, had the opportunity to go to several Chicago Cubs games, hit up a White Sox game or two, check out some Chicago Blackhawks games. Unfortunately, when he was down there, the Chicago Cubs were, as you would say, poopy caca. But nonetheless, the experience at Wrigley Field is a grand one, and it was nice of him to join us for some thoughts about his experiences watching the Chicago Cubs and what a World Series win would mean to that city. So without further ado, let's throw it to the interviews. I'm here with Gordon Wittenmeyer. He is the Chicago Cubs beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he's been kind enough to join the show. Gordon, thanks for some time. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Maybe not as great as some people that deal with the Chicago Cubs are doing, but great nonetheless for a great World Series this year. Briefly, could you just tell my listeners what your role is with the Chicago Sun-Times and some of the things that you do with them as the beat writer? Yeah, I, I uh, cover uh, all the road games. I cover spring training wall-to-wall. Um, I uh, cover more than half the home games. You know, there's some days off sprinkled in there. Um, and then uh, every day from the start of the playoffs all the way through, uh, I'm there on the ground. Wherever they go, I go. Um, so it's uh, classic beat writing. And you've been doing that since 2007? Is that when you came on board there? Yeah, this, this was my 10th season. 
time uh, covering the Cubs in my 20th as a beat writer, uh, four different teams over the years. So you've been around for the rebuilding processes, the 100 loss seasons, some dismal times with the team, but fortunately they've been able to turn that around at least in the last couple of years. Has there been a time since you've taken over the beat, it's probably been a little bit more sooner, that you looked at this team and thought they could be really good, they would be really good, maybe getting to the World Series was actually starting to be a possibility. Well, actually, uh, you know, they, they spent quite a while rebuilding, and it was a, it was a full teardown. So we knew this was going to take a while. We knew that it was going to be, uh, you know, they were going to be putting these pieces back together one or two at a time as they built up. So, you know, 2012, 2013, even into 2000, uh, through 2014, um, there were still trades being made of veterans to acquire young players, and, and the rebuilding process was still in, in, in a full-go mode. Uh, it wasn't until the end of 2014 we started seeing some of the young, talented guys come up from the system and debut. There were uh, Javi Baez Jorge Soler. They had a couple of exciting debuts. But then it was 2015 when Lester was signed. That was a, a huge moment. Um, they picked up Joe Madden, who was kind of the right guy at the right time. And they went into 2015 finally with credibility. Nobody saw 97 wins coming, not even that. Uh, but we did see probably a 500 season, maybe a winning season, maybe flirt with a playoff berth, that kind of thing. And then two months to go that season, they just took off. It was a giant series at home. They were down a half game out of the last wild card spot when that series started behind the Giants. They swept the Giants and and wound up uh, with the lead uh, for that playoff spot heading out of that series, and they never looked back. It was uh, two torrid months into the playoffs, and of course, we all knew at that point just how good this team was. Right, two consecutive seasons with 100 wins or more. What's interesting about this end to the season is that even with all that success, even with so many people assuming that they would at least get to the World Series and many thinking that they would win this year, they fall behind 3-1 and one to the Cleveland Indians, only one more game at home and having to win two on the road. Was there a part of you that might have thought that they wouldn't be able to come back from that deficit? There was a part of them that thought they couldn't come back from that deficit. Ben Zobers tells the story after they lost game four to fall behind three games to one. He said that was the one moment where walking into that clubhouse, it was quiet. Uh, people felt kind of down. And uh, he said it lasted for about 30 seconds. And David Ross uh, came in and got loud and, and told, uh, told the teammates, told the guys, hey, this isn't us. We're not, we're not going to do this. Uh, we're going to come back and we're going to win a game. And, and then we're going to come back and, and win another game. And so it, it, the mood changed at that point. But, yeah, there was a down moment. And, and really, when you look at it, I mean, baseball, so it's so tough to win a baseball game, even when you're really good. To think that you've got to win three in a row, two of them on the road, against a league champion, and you know Game seven's looming with Corey Kluber, the Cy Young Award winner. Yeah, it looked, it looked bleak. Uh, and so, uh, I, yeah, I, I looked at that and thought, they can win game five, and they can and then once they did that, I thought they could win game six. But looking at it as a whole, with those three games uh, potentially to play, 
uh, it definitely looked really bleak. Well, they did manage to win Game 5 and at least give Chicago fans a home win and some hope and were able to force Game 7, as we know. Getting into that game, and you mentioned Dexter Fowler, he's the first African-American player to even play with the Cubs in the World Series. He hits that solo home run in the first inning. How important was it for them to steal that very early momentum and at least get a run on the board? Well, at the time, it, it, it looked huge. But as we saw throughout Game Seven, uh, I mean, the, the emotions and the momentum shifted dramatically at, at different moments throughout that game. And so, uh, what looked important in the first inning, or the third inning, or even the sixth inning, you know, turned out uh, turned out to be you know water under the bridge by the time you know you got to the eighth and the ninth and the, and the rain delay. So, uh, I mean, it was epic. Some people called it the, the greatest World Series game ever. I haven't seen them all, so so I don't know. Uh, you know, greatest game seven ever. It might have been. I mean, just for the just for the emotional uh, pendulum swings uh, and and the finish. In winning a game seven, in having one of the best World Series games of all time, and especially with breaking so many curses that the Cubs have come upon in the last century. There's a lot of belief that a team has to do something spectacular in order to do that. And one of the first things the Cubs were able to do, at least in that game, was get to Corey Kluber and then get to Andrew Miller, two pitchers that had really just dominated them the entire World Series. And there was a couple surprise names that helped in doing that. You had Javier Baez hit a home run. Cross comes in just because John Lester decides to pitch and he hits a home run. How important do you think those circumstances were to get that production from maybe some guys that you might not have expected to do, especially against the names they were able to do it against? Well, if you did nothing more than just kind of look at the math, I mean, the final score was 8-7. to seven. It went 10 innings. Every small thing that happened in that game uh, on the plus side of the ledger mattered. It, it made a difference in the outcome. Um, one of the things that you know, sometimes gets overlooked in victory is, you know, there were some, there were some head scratcher pitching changes by uh, Joe Madden um, throughout that game. And, and they certainly, certainly in retrospect, when you look at them, um, were probably ill-advised uh, when you look at uh, what the outcomes were. Uh, they, they overcame those. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, every one of those small things that you mentioned that contributed to, to runs being scored and, and so on were huge, but uh, they could have won that game going away. I mean, it could have been, you know, uh, uh, let's see, they scored uh, two in a, in a tenth, so, you know, they could have won that thing you know, six, to, uh, six, six to three, six to one, six to two. You know, it, it could have been, uh, it didn't have to be as dramatic probably. You mentioned the pitching changes, and Joe Madden was getting a lot of flack going into Game 7 because he left in Aroldis Chapman in a game that seemingly was already won in Game 6. And it, and it cost him. It right. cost him in Game 7 when we saw that Chapman was just absolutely gassed. Right, and he brings him in, and in the eighth inning, that's when the wheels start falling off the cart. Rajay Davis hits that two-run home run, ties the game up, did you get the feeling that oh no, <laughs> this is this is just another moment that's going to go down in Cubs history against that team? Because really, at that point, the Indians had all the momentum in that field. No doubt, no doubt. That was one of those huge emotional swings I was referring to, and and it it left you, you know, it left you 
sort of like a gut punch, you know, out of breath. And it, it, you couldn't believe what you just saw. And all of a sudden, they, they had come back all the way. And it felt like, my God, the, the Cubs were on the precipice of winning the first, their first World Series since 1908. And now they're not going to do it. That, that's what it felt like. Um, and, and credit to uh, the guys in that clubhouse who got together. I mean, they literally got together and, and had a meeting after that rain delay. And uh, they, 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 they supported Chapman. They, they bullied his spirits. And then they, uh, they looked each other in the faces and, and uh, said, we're still going to win this game. And <laughs> look at the 10th inning after the rain delay. It was amazing. How important do you think that rain delay was? Because both teams yeah. had an equal opportunity to go do something like that, have a pump-up speech. It seemed like the Indians' momentum was killed, and they really didn't do much, at least not that we know of, to get that back. Here you have a guy, Jason Hayward, who really wasn't doing too much, at least at the plate in the World Series, in the postseason, this regular season as a whole, but was a great defensive player for them, won a gold glove the other day, and also was great on the bases. But him being kind of a veteran on this team, just sitting them down, reminding them who they were. I mean, Theo Epstein has to be pleased that even though he had to pay $184 million for the most pricey rain delay speech ever, it's probably well worth it in the end. Oh, no doubt about it. And, and, and remember, I mean, you're, you're right about the defensively, this guy was a difference maker for much of the season. Um, and, you know, he, he had a terrible, there was no, there's no whitewashing it. I mean, he had a terrible offensive season all year long. Um, and, he, and he basically got benched for much of the postseason. But he's got seven more seven more years on that contract, you know. And, and, and yeah, you know, you might say, well, yeah, that might not look so great after this year. But he's still a young guy. And, you know, if you look at his track record, I mean, this this was a bit of an aberration. Um, I mean, it was certainly his worst season. And there's no reason to think that he's going to be, you know, as bad next year. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's still potential upside there. But the guy has been around. The guy has always had a reputation for being a great teammate, a great clubhouse guy. And he's not naturally, like, vocal and boisterous. So when he does have something to say, guys tend to listen. And so uh, what, what he did uh, in that meeting really can't be overstated. It, it was uh, – it, it's, it's a moment that's going to go down in World Series history uh, to a man, everybody in that room, talked about the difference it made and the difference it made to them emotionally and, and, uh, and how it led to what we saw transpire in the 10th inning. So uh, that right there was – that moment was probably all by itself worth his 2016 salary. So we've got a special guest into the bridge. Fictitious producer Eddie Ocasio is joining us live from New York City. Sir, how are you? Thanks for joining the show. Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Second time, long time this is, right? Yeah, a long time. This might be the third time, but first time on the show in over a year. Feels good. Right, it has been a long time. And since we were talking about Chicago Cubs, what people may not know is that you spent one year in Chicago doing some teacherly work. Why don't you tell everyone what that was for and then your relationship with the Chicago Cubs? So I volunteered for a program for a year of service in Chicago. The program was called the Mate House. It was an awesome experience and I was placed at a school and I was able to teach which is what I do now 
and the home that we rented was a converted convent. Yep, I used to sleep in a room where a nun once slept, and uh, not at the same time, of course. We had a place about 10 blocks from Wrigley, and we could walk down there, and the Cubbies were not the powerhouse that they were this year. They were, in fact, the lovable losers. They lost 101 games the year that I lived there. The only member of the team still there is Anthony Rizzo. So that was exciting. This was about three years ago. I remember vividly going to maybe 13 or 14 Cub games and only hearing them sing Go Cubs Go and Fly the W once. That just goes Um, to show you where the team stood. Not very good. Not very good. The best part about it was they were so bad that the bleachers were general admission, as they always are. You could walk down, buy a ticket when the game was starting, like during the national anthem outside from a scalper for about five or ten bucks. If somebody told you 15, you kind of just kept on walking and would hope for a five. They didn't check tickets because nobody was there. We moved down to the, like the 100 level, down the left field line, so many times. We were on the Ivy multiple times trying to catch balls from Alfonso Soriano. That's the name. Before he was to the Yankees. And one time, my friends and I, we had, uh, had a little bit to drink. And we were in the bleachers standing next to Tom Ricketts the owner of the Chicago Cubs. And now Uh, you probably couldn't get anywhere near Mr. Ricketts. No, he shook my hand. It was pretty amazing. And we said, thank you, sir, for putting in $500 million into this stadium that we will probably never get back to in our lives. They added the video boards the next year. They added the sound system. They're making the hotel where that McDonald's is. That's a fabulous McDonald's, too, if you have the chance to go to that McDonald's. That, you know, that McDonald's is more popular than the Cubs, to be honest. But, yeah, that's, my time there was really amazing, and there are so many memories of just going to Cubs games for super cheap and hanging out with people who just love the Cubs and did it because went to games because they love them. You learn a lot about what it's like and about yourself when your team never wins and you lose 101 games and then 90 the next year, and the opening day is still sold out and all those kind of things. Oh, it was really great. And then you leave, and they start getting good again. So maybe you as well curse them along with the likes of the goat, the cat, and the Bartman. What was the yeah. typical day like for you as a young kind of Cubs fan who just wanted to go and perhaps have some beers? When you get to the game, Where are you going outside of Wrigley Field? How are you taking that in? And what was the general atmosphere like for a typical, say, Saturday game? Well, typically my roommates and I would go to the Target down the street from our home and get a 30-rack of the Champagne of Beers, Miller High Life, and have a few of those at home, and then head down. You have to have an old style at Wrigley. That's like their version of PBR. It's disgusting, but it, it tastes better in the friendly confines than it does outside. I can't explain it. It's like the ninth wonder of the world. Murphy's Bleachers is pretty awesome. That's like the famous one on the other side of the Ivy, and they have their own seats. But we like Cubby Bear, Sluggers. Sluggers has batting cages, which is pretty neat. Anywhere on Clark Street was pretty much where we went. Such a great time. And Goose Island, the 
beer, had a brew pub down the street from Wrigley, and I had a bit of an axe to grind with the Cubs and Northwestern Baseball, Northwestern University, I scheduled a tour for the brew pub, which they are so hard to get because they don't do tours on Cubs home weekends. So the tours are about every other weekend. And I finally get on the list. And the day before, on a Friday, call me and said, hey, this is so-and-so from Goose Island. Uh, unfortunately, Northwestern is having an exhibition baseball game at Wrigley, so we have to cancel the tour. And I was livid. But the curse has been lifted. They've won the World Series. If Jason Hayward could bring them all together and say, man, I love you guys, and we're going to go back out there, I can forgive. And I think one day, maybe after this segment, Goose Island will reach out to me and hook me up with a tour or a sampler anything really what's more important is to get those stores and breweries and everything else you've just mentioned to perhaps sponsor the bridge as well as the fictitious producer maybe you can make that happen when you're on the phone with them as well so what you're saying is you probably wouldn't have paid the 150 dollar plus cover to go watch a cubs game there when they were in the world series considering that i have been to those bars for free and bought three dollar cans of beer there probably not no thanks (laughs) <laughs> but Wrigleyville is an amazing experience. Chicago is a great town. A part of my heart is there. New York is where I live. If I could go back in time to any random night in Chicago, I absolutely would. You mentioned how crazy it was at Wrigley, even when the team wasn't good. After winning, we got to see how crazy things were just based on the parade. And once the team came back home, and I know you still have a lot of friends that are in Chicago, a couple which have sent you some messages about what this means to them. What was the sentiment that you got from at least some people you know down there of how important this was? I think for my friends who moved there and did the same program that I did, it was even more thrilling than when we lived there and the Blackhawks won because it, it really uplifted the city. But for people that I know that were born there and into baseball and had rooted for the Cubs their whole lives, this was like the greatest thing that could have ever happened for them and their families. And, uh, I mean, you know, people have been waiting their whole lives for this. Adults have waited since they were children for this, and their parents and maybe their grandparents who taught them the game and used to take them to games have passed. And so I think that for people who live there, it it has the same effect that it has for me. It reminds me of a time that really was special in my life, in their life. And so that, that connectedness to Everything that goes on at Wrigley, those bars that are still there, the players that have come and gone, is kind of what you relive when you think about, wow, this team just won its first World Series in 108 years. Thanks for the kind words about Chicago, sir. It's been quite the month for Eddie. For those of you who might not know, he was suspended for a brief time, but has come back to the show flying high like the W over Wrigley Field, giving segments, now interviews. The man does it all for the bridge, fictitiously. From suspension to on the show, I am living the high life, popping the champagne with the Chicago Cubs. I'm sure when we get all the calls and tweets and comments regarding your brief interview with the show, they'll want you to come back time and time again. So I'm sure we'll have to make that happen based on the fans who will cry and scream for your return to the bridge. No problem with that. Love to have you back on. Thank you, sir. Love to be back. All right, man. Have a good one. Take care. That was better than expected. 
That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes while also leaving a positive rating and review so you'll immediately be notified when new episodes of The Bridge are posted each week. You can also find The Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Once again, you can listen to the show live every Wednesday night on Sports Radio America by visiting sportsradioamerica.com or by tuning in to the TuneIn app. The show is live every Wednesday night starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also visit londonbridge.com slash email to subscribe to the Bridge Sports Podcast newsletter, which will provide weekly updates and behind-the-scenes information about next week's show and who the featured guests might be. And you can email the show at media at londonbridge.com for any of your questions, comments, complaints, or hot takes. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll take a look around the National Football League. We'll also take a closer look into what's been going on in the NBA. But before the next show, we must close this one with a brief tip of the cap to the fans of the Chicago Cubs. Here's how beloved broadcaster Harry Carey would have sounded if he were the announcer for the final out of the 2016 World Series. Sure as God made green apples, someday the Chicago Cubs are going to be in the World Series. And maybe sooner than we think. Everybody.